Good day once again to our listeners on Waterberg Stereo. You are listening to Van Film Duffy Legal News. This is our seventh um, weekly panel discussion on various topics related to the law, related to some uh, legal news that you will also find in the press. Our email address is info at bbd You are welcome to send us your emails with some comments, some questions, and we'll also deal with that during the program if uh, possible. Our panel for today, welcome back to all of them. All of them have been here before. So, uh, yes, uh, let's start here on my left hand side. Um, so, born on it. You said last time, eh? so you're, born you're correct. Sandeka, yeah. Welcome back. <laughs> nice to have you on the panel again. So, uh, we'll look forward to, we we'll look forward to your contribution today. Then, uh, Dumela, Rijo. Uh, I actually know more than Dumela. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I say good thing, when I, you say good thing, when I'm kind, then I also say okay. Yes, well, if, yes, if, yes. if I'm well, okay. I'm, say, I'm not well, but I don't even know if I can say I'm well, so I have to say I'm well. Don't put too much pressure for me. That's Hukai, not okay. That's Hukai. Hukai. It sounds like you say okay. Some, some listeners might, might regard it as. The proper response is okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, and now you've already heard Janus. I actually haven't asked you to talk, but you really <laughs> said something now, Janus. Welcome back to you. Goedendag aan jou, Janus. Welkom terug. Ons sien ook uit na jou bijdrage vandag. En ek is hier bekommerd oor wat ons daar gaan bespreek, want ons gaan bykie die rolle reile. Hy gaan bykie vraag vir my vrouw oor paar onderwerpen ten omzichte van interessante saak. So ja, is ook and then finally, uh, welcome to Ruka Nicola. He was also part of the program, specifically with a few family rights issues. And today, we have another panel on the list. Nicola, there are two matters that you're going to deal with today related to family law. What are those? Yeah, I probeer met niet een persoonlijke vat dat ik nou eerst terug in hoi. Maar yes, I have two matters to discuss with the listeners today. Um, one of them being kind of advice for unmarried fathers um, who is being refused consent to have their um, details reflected on the birth certificate or um, the surname of the child. And then also some advice and, and a matter a case regarding immigration for parents um, where the other parent is refusing to get, give consent to go overseas. Okay, so we'll see what the answers there are. Uh, Janus, what have you got? Well, really, actually mentioned what you have for us today, then. Yeah, okay. This is the states in general, and then and more specifically the matter of Stefan Smith, the standard one film. Okay. There you go. What's up again? Uh, whether I, by mistake, an employee, a colleague of mine, I sent them a porn video, will, I, will it amount to sexual harassment? That is the question that we're going to be discussing today. With a case and a judgment delivered by the Labour Court of South Africa, C versus Prasa and Mbad. Okay, and then finally, Tandeka, what have you got for us? We'll be talking about the Tina Bambini case, wherein Ms. Bambini wins her first round against NetBank in a bondholder battle regarding racism. All right, uh, as we always mention, there's uh, the podcast that you can listen to. For example, during the last program, we talked about the diversion program in criminal matters, Zipoli uh, Kukotla dealt with that, how you can admit guilt without getting a criminal record. So if you didn't uh, listen to that program, you can find it on, on podcasts. 
I cannot get a loan from the bank because of my bad credit record. What do you do in those circumstances? That was discussed by Valdette Gray, so have a listen to that. If you're interested in that topic, she also talks about debt collection, uh, whether it will be worth your while to sue someone that owes you money. Uh, Janus uh, talked about, uh, yeah, we had a very interesting discussion there, I think, to state that point that only male descendants, and the question there was, does this constitute unconstitutional discrimination against the female descendants? Uh, what about freedom of station is one of the questions we asked there. And had a bit of a heated debate on that topic. And then finally, we also dealt with a sick note of former President Zuma, which was very much in the news. What are the requirements for a sick note? So yeah, you can listen to all those podcasts on our website, amongst others. Uh, from Duffy, bbd.co.za find there's a section with all the Vatabas stereo programs that you can then there listen to. The first topic for today, uh, Nicola, the whole question as to whether the father of a child born out of wedlock can uh, insist on his name being added to the birth certificate. There was a court case not too long ago, I think, L versus H and another. Uh, what happened in that case? Yeah, well, um, this matter concerns one of the I want to say many challenges that unmarried fathers um, so often face and that's being refused the right to have their names included on their child's birth certificate, birth certificate by the mother. Yes. So in this case the child's unmarried parents have over the years been unable to resolve any issues relating to this child amic amicably and they've um, always resorted to court applications and litigations and even uh, attempts at mediation have failed. Yeah. So this all started when the child was only four months old and I believe at the time of this judgment in 2018 the child was already five years and they've been put through all of this drama through court. Um, but yes, yeah, so as I say, in this instance then the unmarried father approached the court for an order requesting that the mother ensure that his personal details are listed on the child's birth certificate as the biological father, which it, at that stage it didn't reflect like that. And um, she obviously refused. Yes, she obviously opposed this application and the father also wanted the child's surname to be double-barreled where at that stage he only carried the surname of the mother. Mm. So the mother wasn't very happy with this although she initially did agree um, but she was the, of the opinion that this would create um, a distinguishing factor in her family as she also had a child from another or a previous relationship who carried her surname so that would distinguish the two siblings from one another. Mm. Double barrel meaning the surnames of both of them, right? yes, the father yes. and the mother. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the court finally um, when they looked at this matter they went into quite a lot of detail um, which I really appreciated when reading yeah. um, to go into the importance of a surname when it comes to a child's identity and personality. Um, so this birth document, um, in the court's view, undeniably provided a child with a sense of identity and belonging to both of his or her parents. So the court also found that the father was clearly devoted to his son and committed to playing a meaningful role in his life. So the court found that the child's, or changing the child's surname at the ripe age of five could only be in the child's best interest, which of course is always of paramount importance in these type of, type of matters. Um, so the court also, when considering the long-term benefit um, of this change, found that it will afford the child the opportunity to maintain a healthy relationship with his father and give recognition to both his birthrights and both the parents' commitment to him. 
Um, at the same, same time, it would also provide the, the father with a sense of security of being an active participant um, in the major decisions regarding the child, which the mother basically ignored prior to all of these applications. Mm. Okay, so he was successful, he won this case? Yes, he was successful. The, the mother was ordered to make the necessary arrangements so, so that he then could be listed as the biological father and for the child's surname to become double-barreled. Okay, so in future any father of a child born out of wedlock can basically uh, force the mother to include his uh, surname in the, on the birth certificate? Yes, this de judgment definitely kind of creates that precedent for it and I really am very in favour of this judgment. Um, we often see parties to an acrimonious relationship that struggle um, to put their personal feelings aside to just focus on the best interest of the child instead. So this case really um, shows, that, shows us that the, the child's interest will always be of paramount importance more than what any of the, the parents want or their agendas or wishes. Yeah, I don't do divorces, but yeah, that's certainly often sad to see how the people use the children as a weapon, etc. And then obviously, that's in most cases not in the interest of the child. No? Yes, yeah, and for me, for me, this is kind of one of the basics that uh, parents should get right from the start. Being reflected as the the father and mother on a birth certificate, kind of, I want to say, it sets the basis for the relationship and everything mo moving forward. So, obviously, as we see in this case, they. They had problems from the onset and it was one application of the, the other but I think really this is the one of the things that it shouldn't be a question. If you are the father or the mother it should be listed on the birth certificate. I think we could also say it's sort of in line with the more modern perception of the community that you know, a child born out of wedlock should be to a large extent treated the same way as a, another child. No? Yeah. In the old days it was a something that was much more frowned upon if some child was born out of wedlock so I, I think this is maybe also sort of uh, in line with that yeah they definitely they've done a lot of things to try and put these children on an equal footing to parents that were married so i definitely think that it's a step in the right direction i'm just curious you mentioned um, that the court went into detail about the importance of the surname what what did the court? Um, what is relevant for the court? Why is the surname actually so important? I can understand from the father's point of view, you know, it's his child and he wants the child to carry his surname. But from the legal point of view, what what did the court actually um, took into consideration or regarded as important on that aspect? They were basically just of the opinion that your surname, it's part of your identity and what forms you as a person. So if you have your mother's surname. Your father isn't really um, involved in anything in your life. Um, it definitely can affect the child. So um, it it definitely it ties back to the child's identity and and showing him that you have both parents or you were born from two parents and that they both want to be a part of your life. Okay, thank you, Nicola. Maybe just a last question on on the name of the court case. L versus H and another. Why don't they mention the names or the surnames of the uh, parties to the dispute, which is normally the case? Um, yeah, this is done in child or in family law matters um, where children are concerned kind of to protect the child and their identity. Um, we know that these children concerning these matters will grow older and they don't necessarily want to be associated with this matter 
in the future I can just imagine one of these children growing up to be a law student and having to study your family's case and everybody knows this is your matter so it really is just to protect their identity and give them kind of a clean slate moving forward still yeah. but that only applies to these types of cases now all other legal cases the names are mentioned so there's no uh, you know anonymous uh, parties to that such court cases yeah so that only applies to those limited cases. also if um in criminal matters where there are um children victims or witnesses they will also not disclose their names or kind of use an alias to protect them thank you nicola once again right i'm rather nervous about the next uh, topic here we're going to do a little bit of a role reversal um Johannes pretty much wants to take over everything here from uh, and duffy so he insisted that the next topic, he will ask the questions and I have to give the answers. And um, I said, okay, let's give it a shot. So, uh, Johannes, uh, you're going to give us the facts of the Stefan Smith uh, murder case there in Salem Bosch. I also read a couple of um, articles about this. But yeah, maybe you can give us a summary of the facts and then I'll try to answer the, the questions that uh, Johannes is gonna, going to ask us. Ja, thank you, Volker. Wenn ihr was sweet is, wenn ihr kan ontspan. Het is eigenlijk baie lekker om die kie te gesels weer iets waarvoor ons allemaal een pas het. So ja, dit is dan een bos, een mette. Dit is een wijnfarmer, Stefan Smit, was sot in his house en on his estate, on his farm, apparently by four armed robbers. And we specifically wanted to discuss this mette, Volker, when I discussed it with you earlier this week, because there are some interesting aspects regarding the administration of his deceased estate um, and also the inheritances. Um, so thank you for, for answering these questions. Um, I'm not going to try to to um, make it too difficult, but I'm very interested in what you have to say, Volker, given that you are sort of my mentor here as well. I'm working directly under you. So maybe a bit of background for you and the listeners as well. Um, Stefan, you know, he had a wife from a previous marriage and two daughters as well. Um, and at the time of his death, he was married to his second wife, so to, to a new wife. Yes. Um, and in terms of his will, his second wife only stood to inherit a, a property in a retirement village in Stellenbosch. So if I can maybe put this in perspective, it was widely reported in the media at some stage that he sold one of his farms to the local municipality for 45 million rand. So arguably he was quite a, a wealthy guy and now there's this world where his wife only inherits the, the property in the retirement village. Um, so according to the media it was reported that Stefan changed this world after about 200,000 rand was stole from a safe in his property and he sort of felt like it was an inside job. So there was the old world where his wife apparently, his existing wife maybe, would apparently have inherited quite a lot more and now there's the second world where his wife will only inherit the, the property like I've mentioned and then his two daughters from the previous marriage, they stand to inherit quite a lot and the balance will go to a trust that um, his two daughters are also once again the beneficiary then interestingly his wife from from his previous marriage and also his his sister and um, so yeah th this is this is sort of the background of the facts and it is you know it's gonna have some interesting topics for us to discuss today for regarding the deceased estate okay yeah yeah, so if so you give us uh, your question, what do you want me to comment on? Yeah, I've jotted them down. Your focus, uh, maybe just you know, take us through the, the, the concept of the two worlds. We know there are two worlds. 
but will they automatically be given uh, you know effect to the second will or does the second will have to contain a clause that says you hereby revoke the previous wills and testamentary writings i know most wills does have a clause like that but will it be to the detriment of the the, the second will um, if it didn't have a clause like that, how will you sort of decide which will is now going to be the one given effective? I would say if that revocation clause is in the second will, then obviously it's an easy question to answer. Then the second will yes, will sir. be applied and the first one will not be enforceable. Most wills actually do have such a clause in my experience. However, even if there is no such revocation clause in the second will, if it's from the contents of the second will clear that the the stater wanted to create a new dispensation in respect of the distribution of the assets of the estate with that second will, then it would also be clear that he intended to revoke the first will. In such a case, I think also only the second will would apply. So the only case where the first will, I think, would be uh, relevant is if, for example, uh, the wording of the second will is to the effect that it was more an addendum or codicil as we call it to maybe just make amendments in respect of the first will so uh, obviously we don't have all the facts yeah. in detail of this case but i think that's maybe sort of the general principles that are applied the other possibility might of course be that the second world is declared invalid because of the formality requirements not having been met or there was fraud or whatever in such a case the first will would then also still be, be, be relevant. Yeah, so the, the first will is in such a case automatically brought back to life, uh, you know, if I can use that phrasing. So it's not to say that if you have a new will which isn't valid for some other reason, your, your, the state will now be administered interstate. The, the previous will just once again you know, is, is brought back to life by way of speaking. Yeah? I agree. Yeah, yeah. So obviously in this case, the surviving spouse and the daughters are probably also fighting about the validity of the wills. No? The one wants the second will to be uh, used and the other one the first will because uh, of the uh, of the inheritances uh, provided for in the wills. Well, that fight may be made by, by the existing wife if she wants to inherit a bit more. But, yeah, I mean, there we are sort of, you know, dependent on what the media tells us, Volker. And there were some discrepancies in the media. Some of the articles said that the wife is going to inherit the property on the retirement village and some of them said she's just going to get a right to stay in the property or a life right as it's sometimes also described in the world. Maybe just explain there to, to the listeners what's the difference between inheriting a property and just a right to stay in the property. How does that aspect work? Well, if you inherit the property as such, obviously you become the owner. So you have the full rights in respect of the property like anyone else that owns the property. If you only inherit a life right, as you call it, or habitatio, as we sometimes also refer to it, the right to live in the property, uh, then it depends on the wording. Um, typically, a will would prescribe what rights are given, for example, to the surviving spouse. Can she live there for as long as she wants to, and then if she moves out, she loses the right, or uh, can she live there for a certain period of time, or can she... Uh, basically have the benefit of the property for the rest of her life. That would actually be a typical usufruct where yeah. she has the full benefits of the property. And then she can also rent out the property to another tenant and get the rental income if it is a full usufruct. In other words, then 
uh, it's no requirement that she has to live in the property to enjoy that right. So one has to look at the wording of the will to see what specific rights were created by the testator. Yeah, there, um, I think you would agree it's also important to actually, or that, that is why we can make a good argument that you should get your will drafted by an attorney, because people often just state that, you know, my wife will have a right to live in the property, and then there's a there's a fight about is it a usus or a usufruct or habitat, yes. and there's actually an important difference there. So maybe just for the listeners to take note of that, no? I agree, and what we actually normally also stipulate in a bit more detail is who's going to carry which expenses, because there yeah. are some, um, or there are some legal principles that by law are applicable to these scenarios. But it's always, I think, better in the world to say who's going to pay for the insurance, who's going to pay the municipal taxes, who's going to maintain the property, etc., so that there is no dispute between the usufruct holder and the beer dominium holder. That's what we call the owner of the property who would get the property after the usufruct holder has passed away. So the rules should preferably uh, set out those details as well. Yeah, thank you, Fork. If I can maybe step away from that point. I was, you know, whilst I was reading the articles, I was thinking that surely the, the second wife is accustomed to a certain state of living now. Um, and I think it's safe to say that she probably didn't work uh, if we looked at the, the estate value of, of, of her husband. So my question basically is what can she do now? Does she just have to accept the fact that she only gets the property? Can she institute a claim against the estate? Um, you've discussed now that she can sort of fight the validity of the second world to try and inherit in terms of the old world. But let's say the second world is, is valid. Is there something else she can do? Does she have other avenues which she can perhaps explore? Yes, there was an important change that came in our law in the beginning of the 90s, a couple of years ago, where there was specific legislation introduced to cater for the surviving spouses to also have a maintenance claim against the deceased estate. So before that legislation came into operation, that's the Maintenance of the Surviving Spouses Act, it was actually sort of an assert to uh, a situation that you could have whereby a divorced spouse would sometimes have a claim against the deceased estate based on a divorce order, for example, but the surviving spouse who was, in other words, still married to the deceased would, for example, then not have a claim. The presumption obviously was that the deceased would normally look after the surviving yeah. spouse in his will if the wife is a surviving spouse, but then obviously there are some cases where the deceased did not cater for the surviving spouse in terms of uh, her inheriting portion of the estate and then she had a problem. She couldn't actually claim from the deceased estate. But then fortunately the legislator introduced that Maintenance of the Surviving Spouses Act and in terms of that act, the surviving spouse, let's say it's the, it's the wife who is the surviving spouse, can now claim from the deceased estate and then that act, it's a really brief uh, or short act, mm -hmm. But it does stipulate the criteria that the courts must apply. For example, uh, prescribes that the size of the estate, deceased estate, is relevant. In other words, the assets that are available in the estate. It also refers to the assets of the surviving spouse. It refers to the duration of the marriage, etc. So those are all then factors that the court would take into consideration to decide if there is a dispute. Um, how much can the surviving spouse uh, claim? So to answer your question, if whatever she inherits uh, is not enough or if she doesn't inherit at all, she can then institute such a maintenance claim.
How am I doing thus far? Uh, well, I must say I'm quite impressed. I'm not sure uh, in the panel, <laughs> do you agree with me? I mean, if you have any difficult questions to ask Volker, please do so. Stay with us, Vicky. But no, you can you can be very satisfied. Um, there was mention made in the articles, Volker, that the second wife borrowed money from, from Stefan. So there seems to be some uncertainty about that. I know in the past we've got that question from clients as well. Um, if the deceased did borrow money to his, his spouse or to the children and he now passes away, do they need to pay that back? Is it simply written off because they were family and he passed away? Uh, maybe just explain how that works as well, Volker. Yes, normally the position is, I believe, that such a claim for payment of the loan is payable on demand. In other words, because it's family, there's no fixed date on which the loan has to be repaid. And uh, the position then is assumed to be that it's payable on demand by the creditor. In other words, for example, in this case, the deceased. So if that is the case, then the executor of the estate can then obviously also enforce that right to demand payment so he can then also ask the relevant beneficiary of the state the here the child or whoever the, uh, the the debtor might be to pay back the loan so uh, normally if there is a deceased estate where that is uh, relevant then uh, it would obviously be a claim against the deceased estate yeah. and it would then be brought into the calculations uh, when it is decided to uh, should at the end of the day get what out of the deceased estate so if that child for example also inherits then you can obviously set off that loan against the claim that the deceased had against that relevant uh, beneficiary. What I can maybe also mention is that um, often we specifically cater in a will for the loans to be written off because uh, often uh, the state or districts would say that whoever I borrowed money to, uh, family, children, spouses or whatever, I don't want them to repay it to my deceased estate after I've passed away. I'm happy just to write off the debt and then we can add a clause to that effect in the will. Sometimes what we also do is that we make specific where they want those loans to be repaid. There we make specific reference to those loans to make sure that the executor is aware of those loans. Yeah. Because there's always a bit of a concern that whoever owes that money because it's family and it might not have been recorded in an agreement or whatever, that that child or whoever got the money might not mention it to the executor and then get away with not paying it back. So from time to time also draft rules where we rather specifically make reference to those loans that must still be brought in and deducted from the inheritance of the relevant children that owe the money. Yeah, I think especially you know if you, if you loan money to family, it's not always in writing. And now the children must stand to inherit and they would say, but you know, my father loaned money to his brother, there's nothing in writing and the brother will say, that, that definitely did not happen. And then you're assured of another family feud because of this estate and you know, proper records were not kept. But be that as it may, maybe um, foreign investments, there's also talk that, that Stefan had uh, foreign investments for I know a lot of people these days look, look to overseas to invest their hard-earned money. Um, how does that work? Is Does it automatically form part of the South African world? Is there something else that we should be, be aware of, you know, from a, from a deceased estate administration point of view? What is your advice there for basically then between local investments and then foreign investments? If the will, I think, specifically uh, or doesn't specifically deal with any 
foreign assets, then the will would also apply to those assets. So if you just make a will and you say, for example, your children inherit an equal shares, then that covers pretty much all your assets in South Africa or abroad. And that will can then also be used in respect of the assets overseas. What we normally advise our clients is to rather, from a practical point of view, sign different wills for each country in which the state or testatrix has some assets. In other words, if you have assets in South Africa, you sign a will here and you stipulate in that will that it applies to the assets in South Africa only. If you yeah. then have some investments or fixed property or whatever in, in, in America, in the USA, you can then preferably also sign a separate will to cater for those assets in uh, the United States only, etc. So wherever you might have some assets in another country, I would suggest that a separate will is signed. Obviously, you must then draft those wills carefully to make sure that you don't revoke the one will uh, with the other will that you sign, sign later. So the will should clearly stipulate that they only apply to the assets in the relevant country. And then if you pass away, those separate rules can be used in each country to report and wind up the estate and uh, can certainly help to expedite the processes. Yeah, so once again, make sure the world is properly drafted and properly worded so that you, you know, cater for all the scenarios and all the different um, assets. Uh, Folke, yeah, to close, maybe I can bring us back to the trust that was mentioned of, um, it, it was stated in the media that Stefan's first wife, like you said, she's a beneficiary of the trust, but uh, she's also apparently a trustee of the trust. Um, my first question, maybe, is that possible? Can you be a trustee and also a beneficiary of the trust? Um, and, and can you name a trustee in your will? Can you appoint, because, you know, trust is sort of a separate legal person, eh? so now I, in my will, appoint a trustee for the trust. Are you allowed to do that? So it's a twofold uh, question for Kaya. Maybe your thoughts on that. First question, yes, uh, you can be a trustee and a beneficiary of a trust. You should, however, be the only trustee and only beneficiary. So there should always be an independent trustee. Yeah. So um, if uh, maybe any of the listeners have a trust, family trust, and uh, there are only beneficiaries as trustees on, on that trust, then uh, our advice would most certainly be to rather bring in an independent trustee. The master of the High Court in any event these days doesn't allow the registration of new trust where there is no independent trustee. Independent trustee means some that is, someone that is not a family member of the beneficiaries and the other trustees and then is also um, not, uh, 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 not a beneficiary as such. So that's where the independent comes, uh, comes in. So yes, um, that would be the advice. So you can be both a trustee and a beneficiary, but there should be an independent trustee. The other question uh, dealing with uh, whether you can nominate a, a trustee, trustee in, your, in, in, in your will, yes. Um, it depends on the trust deed of that trust, whether that gives someone, for example, the founder of the trust, to the, the right to nominate a trustee. If that is the case, and my experience is that most trustees actually cater for it, then you can indeed in your will nominate someone as a trustee in your place, or actually also more than one person. If you feel it's necessary that two trustees might have to replace you, then you can also cater for that in your will. So that's actually rather important. A lot of people these days do have family trusts. So if uh, that is the case, remember that you must also look at who will replace you as a trustee and maybe then nominate someone in your will as a trustee 
because the trustees are pretty much in charge of the trust assets. So they decide what should be done with the trust assets, should they be sold, should they be invested, or whatever the case might be. And they also, normally in your typical discretionary trusts case, have the right to decide which beneficiary should get how much out of the trust. Yeah, so the trustee can, can also be a beneficiary. Um, can, can the executor or executrix also be a beneficiary in terms of the will? Yes, that's also not a problem. So you can be both. You can, for example, nominate your surviving spouse as executor and uh, that surviving spouse can then still be a beneficiary in terms of the will as well. All right, Falk, and then, you know, the whole issue about trust, you mentioned now a lot of people actually have family trust and they'll often find, you know, clients coming in and they want the family trust to be registered for them and they don't really know why. After you've consulted with them, they just sort of want to register trust because someone on the street told them, you know, maybe put that property in the trust, uh, or, you know, depending on the circumstances. What's, what's your take on that, Falk? When should someone consider registering a trust? When will it actually be beneficial and yeah, maybe just keep it brief, we've been busy a while now, Volker. Yes, um, look, a lot of the legislation has changed over the last couple of years, um, which from especially a tax point of view makes a trust a less attractive uh, option for an estate planner. So I would advise clients not to rush into anything, rather get proper legal advice from an attorney, for example, so that he can explain to you what the pros and cons of a trust are and so one can have a look at your specific circumstances and uh, decide whether it will be a good idea to incur the expenses of setting up a trust for you. Yeah, they tax that 45% uh, as a general rule there. It's the maximum rate, yes. Yeah, so there's no sliding scale as in the case of you know a, a natural person and its income. So tax is 45%, which is quite high. Like you said, it's the maximum scale, the maximum percentage. Yes, that's correct. But that's only in respect of the income that the trust is entitled to that is not paid out to the beneficiaries. If the um, income is distributed to the beneficiaries immediately, then the income tax rate of the beneficiaries apply, which makes a big difference. So that's where you can still, they talk of uh, wanting to maybe stop that and change that, but at this stage it's still available. So you can uh, still, according to the so-called so convert principle, yeah. uh, allocate the income of the trust to the beneficiaries, even when your children might be taxed at a lower rate uh, than you or your spouse or whatever, and thereby save some income tax. Yeah, no, thank you, Volker. That, uh, that's my story for today. Okay, to be honest, I think you also didn't do too bad with your uh, question and your questions in your interview. So, uh, hopefully, the listeners uh, found that interesting, and hopefully, there are a couple of tips that we shared with you that you can also apply to, uh, to your specific situation. That uh, then takes us to the next uh, topic here for uh, Rehu uh, sharing a porn video by accident by WhatsApp. Is that sexual harassment? That was the interesting question that the court had to answer in the case that you looked at. Uh, what happened there? Yes, uh, thank you, Volker. Uh, good day to all the listeners. I'm very fortunate to be dealing with uh, WhatsApp, um, and I'm not so much very well. <laughs> Yes, Yes, Volker. The other one was, yeah, the question whether an, an agreement can be concluded by WhatsApp. No? Yes, that yes. Was, I think also interesting one. So, if any of the listeners missed that one, please go to our podcast on uh, Spotify or any of the other well-known uh, uh, sites where you can find those podcasts or on our website, uh, vvd.co.za. 
you will find all the previous programs there and there was a very interesting court case there where it was, it was a million rand claim that basically yes. was instituted based on an agreement um, that was uh, allegedly concluded uh, by a WhatsApp. But sorry, I interrupted you th uh, this yes. case today. What What is this one um, about? Here what we have, it was delivered uh, two weeks ago um, at the Labour Court of South Africa. It's the matter of C versus uh, Passenger Rail, um, abbreviated as PRASA and Mbata and the Commissioner, the Commissioner at the CCMA. So for the brief overview of the facts, what transpired here is that um, two employees, uh, one Mr. Mbata and the appellant, uh, what transpired was that the Mr. Mbata, um, a colleague and uh, of the appellant mistakenly sent a porn video uh, to a colleague, um, female colleague, and they thereafter, um, after doing so, uh, informed him that actually that was sent by mistake, and he apologizes for that. And then the following day, uh, the uh, Mr. Mbata reiterated to her to say that I apologize for sending you this uh, video. And then there was no response from the appellant. But the appellant didn't only take it there. The appellant then reported uh, the matter to the HR department. The HR de department uh, accusing Mr. Mbata of sexual harassment. And obviously, the HR department, they had a policy that they had to follow as the employer. And they later found out that actually there wasn't any sexual harassment that took place. Mm. And obviously, she was uh, not uh, welcoming that finding and referred the matter to the CCMA for um, uh, conciliation or arbitration. And their later arbitration, the CCMA then also concluded uh, in favor of Mr. Mbata that indeed there was no sexual harassment that took place until it ended up in the Labour Court. Okay. And in the Labour Court, what did that court decide? Yes. So the Labour Court was strictly confined to one issue as to whether indeed there was sexual harassment that took place. And they had to assess all the evidence that was obviously before the CCMA as well as the report that was uh, provided by the employer, the investigation that was done by one of the HR, senior HR of PRASA. And in concluding, or rather an analysis of the facts of the matter and the merits themselves, uh, the Labour Court simply concluded that indeed there is no sexual harassment. Um, but we can venture into more of the legal intricacies uh, that transpired there. At first, through an assessment of the evidence, uh, the Labour Court um, did note that the CCMA had also considered the fact that indeed, in certain instances or on several occasions, there was an exchange uh, by Mr. Mbata and the appellant. There was previously sexual videos that were exchanged. Mm. And uh, the appellant never had a concern with that. Um, they even engaged on pleasantries. You know, through WhatsApp, you send me a porn video and I say, wow, this is amazing, or and so forth and so forth. Mm -hmm. There was never a problem there. And the Labour Court. Between those two? Yes, yes, between the, the two of them. Parties, yes, yeah. the same parties. But um, the Labour Court also noted that, look here, um, it is quite clear that uh, the video, when it was sent by Mr. Mbata, he sent a text message thereafter to say that I apologize for sending this one. Mm -hmm. 
and he retracted and also apologized vehemently of which the appellant never responded mm -hmm. so he was quite shocked as to why did he, uh, she reported to to the senior hr department mm -hmm. And the court, you know, also assessed a fair aspect on the matter to say that, or rather buttressed the point to say that sexual harassment is a very serious issue. Um, it's akin to an, uh, uh, someone accusing you of racism. It's not just a mere issue whereby we can just molecular issues. And in determining that, um, there was clearly no justification as to why uh, the applicant decided to um, allege sexual harassment, taking into account all the evidence that was uh, that was led in the in the in the CCMA. As I've already uh, informed you, uh, Volker, is that um, there was an engagement between the two, and there was also a followed by an apology. Now, the reason why the apology becomes of importance, Volker, is that um, sexual harassment, uh, the definition of sexual harassment because um, there are certain types of conduct, like as, as in this case, that will not necessarily amount to sexual harassment. Mm. So yes. what is the definition of, of sexual harassment? Well, the Minister of Labor, some time ago, in terms of the Employment Equity Act, um, issued uh, a code. Mm. Um, I think uh, all our listeners can quickly uh, go on, the, on Google, uh, the tool that is very powerful, we use it very frequently, um, and try to see the code. Uh, the code of good practice is what it's called. And it clearly defines uh, sexual harassment as an unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature, taking into account the following factors. For instance, it will say that whether the harassment is on prohibited grounds of sex or gender, or of sexual orientation, of which this one was the one that was relied on by the appellant. The other one is that whether the sexual conduct was and unwelcomed. In other words, that particular person made it very clear that I do not want this particular uh, um, uh, uh, conduct. Mm. And there wasn't any engagement, as I've already indicated, and there was an apology from the Mastambata. Mm. And the third point is that whether the nature and the extent of the sexual conduct will have to be uh, uh, looked into, and also the impact of that particular sexual conduct on the employee. So, Foka, just to summarize it, from my analysis of the code is that sexual harassment can happen in very various forms. It can either be orally, verbally, or it can be by way of conduct, in other words, touching, uh, and it can be in a form of also WhatsApp. I'll say that, I say this because if it had happened in a different context, in other words, an exchange of this particular video, and then there was some form of conduct from Mr. Mbata to say that, look at this, look at this video, and there was some form of an offer to say that um, if you look at this video, this is what I'm going to do. Can we do this or demanding some form of a favor yes. for, for, for sending all, all those uh, pornographic images? It would have amounted to sexual harassment mm -hmm. because then there would have been an engagement from the appellant to say that I do not appreciate of this particular conduct. Mm -hmm. Can you please stop? Mm -hmm. But in this particular instance, the message, the court also assessed that the message was actually forwarded. And the court also noted uh, the, the argument by Prasa to say that it was also submitted that Mr. Um, Mbata had also sent the same similar video to uh, another employee, but that employee did not have an issue with it. Um, and Mr. Mbata had also indicated that it was actually sent by, by mistake. And if, it had, if he had not had the, the numbers of the appellant, um, that could not have happened, and he apologized and to say that um, he was going to delete the numbers of the appellant. 
Okay. So the fact that they previously had exchanged certain messages, I guess, made yes. a difference in this case as well. Yes. And also the fact that you immediately apologized and sort yes. of tried to retract what was yes. known as yes. said. And then I guess that then also applies to any other situation where by accident, you know, yeah. you for example touch and draw you and you immediately yes. apologize, etc. Then yes. I guess you should also be okay. Yes, be yes, most definitely. I can come to that conclusion. Um, as I said, Volker, um, you know, there's a principle that we use in our law um, to say that um, each, each and every case is determined on their own merits. In other words, um, not each and every um, circumstance will justify sexual harassment in this particular case. The circumstances of that particular uh, incident will have to be assessed and whether or not we can conclude as to whether sexual harassment had indeed taken place or not. Yes. A couple of years ago, actually rather a number of years ago, when I was still in charge of the debt collection department there of firm, I accidentally sent an email out to all the staff members in the department with all their salaries. Can you believe that? I was scared for what you were about to say. <laughs> <laughs> but you guys did something completely different. So, yeah, I, I, I wasn't aware of the, the recall of the email function that you now have an outlook, etc. So I immediately ran to all the pieces in the department and there were quite a lot of employees working for us in the department at the time and uh, quickly had to delete all the emails and delete all the deleted items to make sure that they couldn't see all the salaries. So yeah, I think uh, all the listeners uh, will probably also have a couple of stories of emails or whatsapps or whatever sent uh, by accident. So at least if something like this happens, I guess the, the, the biases immediately apologize, immediately yes. make it clear that it was uh, not intentional. I mean, it's it's one of the disadvantages, Maria uh, Foka. Um, previously, as we we're engaging with our listeners, that since the advent of uh, technology, you know, in South Africa and actually across the whole world, is that you know new social media platforms are being created, and it's our, we as lawyers are forced to actually, um, and also the parliament is forced to um, enact legislation that will be able to deal with these particular issues. Even the court then noted that um, WhatsApp, you know, mistakes can happen over WhatsApp and taking into account also, I'll say, the age of Mr. Mbata, you know, such mistakes can happen, uh, Miss Finger, you know, and um, hence these considerations will, people need to be cautious, especially with things like WhatsApp, Telegram, Facebook, Instagram, and all those social media platforms, you know, think twice before you click the send button. Yes. Fortunately, on WhatsApp, I've now learned, because I've also met mistake or two, that you can delete the messages. But the, the recipient still can see that the WhatsApp was deleted that you said what the yes. yeah. Anyway, yeah, thank you, Rika. I think that's interesting. Next one, uh, Nicola. The whole question of immigration and the children that, for example, I think the mother in this case now wanted to take to New Zealand and the father now refuses uh, permission, uh, what what now? So there was, what was the court case again there? It's um, RW versus CS, a 2019 um, matter. And I think that's really so relevant. It's something that we are seeing more and more in practice. And I think that's mainly due to the 
increase in separation and divorces between parents and also the fact that people are looking and following um, opportunities so whether that's overseas um, abroad or local um, people are more willing to move these days um, so yeah in this matter um, the mother was looking to relocate to New Zealand with her new fiance um, and she had a four-year-old boy um, from a previous relationship um, and when she then or this opportunity arose she approached the father of the child um, to request his consent which he then subsequently refused uh, saying that they cannot relocate or she cannot take the child with her to New Zealand um, so and there is at least some form of relief for a parent in this situation and we find that in section 18 3 and 5 of the Children's Act um, so that basically states that a parent must give or refuse any consent required by law and unless a competent court orders otherwise the consent of all persons that have guardianship of a child is necessary in certain matters and then that also um, includes the consent to the child's departure or removal from the Republic so as I said um, this father refused his consent and the mother then approached the court um, for the court basically to substitute the father's consent with its own. So in bringing this um, sort of application it's very important that the motivation for wishing to leave the country must be clearly explained and then also on the other side the motivation for refusing to give that consent um, before the court will substitute its own consent then. Um, so the court has a discretion? Uh, the court does have a discretion and once again the court who is an upper guardian of, of minor children, they have a very wide discretion and there's no specific onus that needs to be discharged in this type of matters. Um, the, court, the court will largely focus on the party's bona fides and the reasonableness of the parent's decision to immigrate. Um, so in judging this, um, the court must determine whether that decision to relocate is dri driven by a desire to exclude the other parent from access to the child or whether the parent has taken that deci decision reasonably having regard to her own future, the parent's own future and also that of the child. Yes. So in this matter, the mother was really able to justify this decision um, quite well um, her fiancé had received the opportunity to relocate and they then could go along with him. Um, it was a very lucrative job opportunity so she would be able to be a stay-at-home mom and um, being able to spend more time with the child um, which obviously in the background of South Africa's current unemployment and high crime statistics it's very difficult for a court to kind of find otherwise than, than or to take that opportunity from from both or the parent and the child. So the sort of attractiveness of the opportunity overseas is very much relevant. No, look yes it definitely is especially um, I think it will be more difficult if it's not that a lucrative or a good opportunity because then you are basically just putting distance between the other parents and the child which is more difficult to justify. Um, so there would be a big difference between Relating to New Zealand or North Korea, for example, that in North Korea the court might have found different. Right? I think so, or I think you would have to to justify it um, much better or convince the court. Um, but yes, at the end of the day, if you can prove that it's a bona fide decision, it's reasonable. You have considered everything and put the, the that before the court. It is very difficult for the court to refuse leave for the you and the child to relocate. 
Age of the child? Would that, for example, be relevant? Um, well, the Children's uh, Act actually requires us to, to listen to the voice of the child in matters concerning a child um, and that, that their opinion should be given due consideration. Um, obviously, that opinion of the child and the weight that it carries will depend on the child's age um, and stage of development, but it definitely could play a role if the child doesn't wish to relocate with a parent, you, it's very difficult to force somebody or to force a child, um, especially where there is an alternative parent, if that parent is willing to instead look after the child and, and can offer um, a good, well, parenting, basically. And from what age? Or I guess there are also no, no hard and fast rules, it depends on the circumstances. Yeah, there, there is not a specific age that you can kind of link to that. Um, each child is different. You have four-year-olds um, that can articulate themselves very well and can form opinions um, that are based on facts and then there are others that are not uh, mature so it really depends on, on, on the, the facts of the matter and the specific child. Gender of the child? I wouldn't really say that that would be too relevant. Um, I think it would come back to the needs of the child and the parent's ability to provide in that needs. Um, these days it really isn't a question um, anymore of daughters having to be with their mothers and sons that have to be with their fathers or that all children have to be with the mothers. It really depends on the, the child's needs and the parent's ability. Okay. All right. Thank you, Nicola. I think that gives us some good uh, guidelines in terms of immigration and uh, what to do with the children. Then. Our last topic for today, Tandeka, the uh, net bank decision was actually not the final outcome eh, of the court case yet, um, but it's in first round sort of that the newspapers also reported on that was now won, I think, by by the um, the person that is taking on NetBank. Eh? They call it, I see in one of the articles, David versus Goliath, David against Goliath. Um, so yeah, what happened in this case? What are the facts? Mr. Volker, I think that this matter has correctly been dubbed um, David versus Goliath. Here we have Ms. Tina Bambini, who is suing NetBank for an amount for future loss of earnings in the amount of 2 million rand. She's also suing NetBank for um, loss of income in the amount of 160,000 rand. So the facts behind this matter is that um, Ms. Bambini was denied a seat um, on the Bonitas Trustees Board of Directors on the basis that um, NetBank had granted judgment against her after one of her properties were foreclosed on. Okay. Now one of her arguments, her main argument really was that NetBank has an internal policy of granting people in areas uh, a, a grace period of about six, three to six months. However, in her circumstances, she was not given this courtesy of this grace period, whereas she settled her areas in full um, in a, over a period of five months. So she's basically claiming unscrupulous business practices. She's claiming that um, NetBank to a certain degree has levels of racial profiling that is done on their mortgage holders. And yeah, so this matter, the main action is still before court. But last week, the, an, an application was brought by NetBank to have this matter dispensed with on the basis that they were alleging that there is not a common, uh, there isn't a cause of action going forward. Um, but however, David seems to have won this round. Um, she she um, she has won the the the, the application was dismissed, of course. And yeah, so now we're waiting for the main application to be heard, where the merits will be detailed. So this was an exception, am I right, yes. to the uh, particulars of claim? In other words, the, the, the NetBank argued that 
in, in, in principle, there's not even on the papers a case that uh, she has made out, and that's where she succeeded in, in convincing the court that there is in principle a case she would have a claim if she can prove obviously all the facts. So the next round would then, amongst others, entail uh, you know decision on the facts as such, and it doesn't mean that she has won the final battle. No? Exactly. So she just won the first round, as the newspapers have also said. Okay, but yeah, I guess that's already an important indication that the court felt that she does, in principle, uh, have a case that an implant has to answer on. Mm -hmm. So we will certainly keep an eye on that and uh, keep you as a listener uh, informed on what the court there will, will, will find. What do you think? Do you agree with what the court uh, here held? Again, um, like like Rehu mentioned earlier, I think um, the merits will, will really be detailed, will we'll really choose, the court will decide based on the merits. But I think it's quite interesting to note that this isn't the first time that financial institutions have been in the limelight and been accused of racial profiling. A few years back it was actually leveled, um, um, FNB was accused of uh, uh, giving higher interest rates um, to property holders, um, um, specifically to black people. So it, it's, it's quite interesting. So. Um, I think, I think, I think, let's wait and see. Yes. For the first time, I don't have a definite uh, answer, but yeah. Okay. Right, that's all we have time for today. Thank you, uh, Tandika. So, uh, once again, please uh, send us your emails, your comments, info at vvd for confoundduffy.co.za is our email address. Thanks for uh, listening uh, to us today, and please make sure that you tune in again uh, next week, Wednesday, between uh, 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And then also Friday evenings, there's another broadcast of the Wednesday program between uh, 7 and 8 o'clock on Friday evenings.